Welcome to the Conversations with Anna podcast. My name is Dr. Anna Stump, the Golden Ticket Professor, a self-proclaimed edutainer. I'm a former business executive turned high school teacher turned college professor. And in the past three decades of that transition, I have spent time with several generations. And with that as my foundation, I have some stories to tell. In each episode, you'll hear stories or interviews that will help you focus on your own truth. I want you to feel accepted, motivated, supported, and then I want you to be able to take what you know about yourself and your truth, go out into this big old world we live in and apply that so you can move forward with a strategy for a more authentic life. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's jump in to a conversation with Anna. It's early in the day, so much I want to do. I dedicate today to breaking rules. I'm gonna stick to a strategy. I'm gonna find out exactly what I'm made of. Is there really something wrong with just smiling the whole day long? Welcome back to another conversation. I'm super pumped about this guest today and the conversation that we had. I met Liesl Mertes in early 2020. And by that, I mean early enough that we were out in public. We were at a networking event. <laughs> you guys remember those? Like what I wouldn't give um, some days for a crowded room and my sloppy handwriting in Sharpie on a sticker, hello, my name is name badge. And a bunch of awkward glances around the room to people. But Liesl and I walked into this event somewhat together. Um, We were both females there alone and ended up going through the food line and kind of um, chomping on some, some shrimp and having a conversation. And when I asked her what she did, she said, I am a corporate empathy coach. And I thought to myself at the time, my goodness gracious, do you have a pen? Because I could just list for you for days people that desperately need your services. And we kind of chit-chatted about how crucial um, that type of training and awareness was in the corporate world today. Fast forward, my goodness, look at what we've been through in 2020. And I feel like her work is even more important in the corporate setting, but was super grateful that she um, had the time to come on and talk to me about empathy from her story, from her um, personal standpoint, and just how we can view that. Because as you know, if you've been a longtime listener of these last 30 some episodes, it is something that I was raised by a truly poster child empath and who was constantly always telling me, you know, you should have more empathy. So I kind of always felt like I was lacking. And I mean, I, I get now that I'm not I'm probably fairly average, but I will tell you, Liesl is someone who I hope that you will take a deep dive into some of her content. Um, when you listen to this episode, we are going to talk about her avatars. And she mentions them kind of nonchalantly, but I really I'm going to link to it in the show notes. But she has a blog and her leading with empathy um, from just a few weeks ago, October 27th, 2020. 
she lists out these avatars and I want to share them with you to give you some frame of reference around these because I think they are amazing. I think we have all slip and slide in and out of some of these personas. I think we are surrounded by these personas. So I think it's really important. So she calls these her empathy avatars and she says, you know, the great news about empathy is that you can improve. And it's a skill set, it's a muscle, it's a practice. You can grow in this and be better. But you really want to take a, a really good hard look at yourself now and figure out what you already have in your empathy toolkit and like what you're very naturally good at. And then think about when you've interacted with these avatars, with people that have these tendencies, how it made you feel, and if you ever act out any of these. So Let's start with Silent Sam. Sam does not want to say or do the wrong thing. So Sam does nothing at all and hopes that the problem goes away. Mm. Yes, you know, my personality and Silent Sam do not mesh well. That doesn't mean I don't become Silent Sam sometimes because I do. Fix it, Frank. Frank is a problem solver by nature. Frank is quick with a suggestion of someone needs to do, of what they need to do to get better. And that's in quotes because sometimes we know that's not actually where a person needs to focus. Cheer up Cheryl. Cheryl has the gift of positivity, but she is always pushing people to look on the bright side, often before they are ready to do so. At least is one of her favorite phrases. So she will talk about the situation you're in, but she'll say, at least it's, you know, and then tried to, that's always like adding the butt. So that is cheer up Cheryl. And then we have buck up Bobby. Bobby is inconvenienced by displays of emotion. Bobby believes empowering through difficult emotions and feels strongly that emotion has no place in the workplace, no place in the office. Buck up Bobby. Mm. I've had a lot of buck up Bobbies in my day. Commiserating Candace is next. Candace jumps in with her own story, hijacking anyone else's narrative. Suddenly the entire conversation becomes about her or her sister or her dog. You get the point. Just, any conversation, anything commiserating Candace can turn it around with the spotlight on herself. Interrogating Edward. Edward's a natural investigator. He likes to get to the bottom of things and will pepper you with questions. Well, why do you feel that way? What made that happen? What do you think about that? Leaving you feeling extremely defensive. And then finally, joking Julie. Joking Julie wants to change the subject with a joke. She is dismissive of your disclosure and makes light of your pain. And she also does this to herself. So she's not doing it out of disrespect for you. So I will link to these in the show notes, but I just, I think those are true brilliance. And we talk about these a couple times in this uh, episode. So I wanted you to have a little frame of reference to those. But I hope you enjoy this conversation with Liesl. It was in the evening after her kids had gone to bed and she was uh, in her closet. <laughs> and we were on video and both of us looked like, you know, we'd had a long day because we had and I think that made it more fun. And it it was somewhat she's someone the moment I met her at that uh, networking event, I followed her on LinkedIn, like while we we're standing at our little table munching on shrimp. And has really brought a lot of 
perspective and aha moments into my life to follow her on her social media platforms and to constantly see her pop up and doing good work and just her vulnerability and her intentionality. I think you will absolutely fall in love with all of it, just like I have. So please enjoy this conversation with Anna and Liesl. So here's what's a riot to me, if I let myself think about it, is you're one of the very last people that I met before all this hit. Yes. You remember that? We were still networking and there was shrimp and there was the screen (laughs) and everybody was talking about all we were going to do in 2020. We were like at those tall bar tables and I was like, tell me what you do. I was wearing these pink heels. Oh, look at that. They have not been out for quite some time. And you were like, I am like an empathy coach. And I was thinking that must be fantastic in this corporate environment. And then like if 2020 was made for one word, and I've seen it a couple of times in your content, like this is the year of, wow. Totally. Although, you know, it's still, still a thing. I think everybody know, like they've all felt the pinch of being like, oh, I need something more. Mm-hmm. There's still the there's still the connection of, oh, I believe that I can get better, and I believe I should put money to it, uh, which are two you know jumps that are not right. necessarily, uh, you know, intuitive all the mm-hmm. time. But I think the use case is you know a lot more present. Yeah, and so I have to really throttle myself when I'm talking to you on this podcast because you. You and I are on this like business leadership, you know, like we have that in common. And I would love, I mean, there's just so much good stuff hey, down that road right now. It's your podcast. I know. You don't but have to throttle yourself. Go for it, baby. <laughs> I know. But I, you know, two and a half hours later when we're still, you know, talking in, in the circles and things. But yeah. So, but I really am fascinated and I've had some things. It's funny. Like I watched you on mindset Mondays mm. with Kylie Schmitz and like, I, she's the one who called me one day cause she did my 16 personalities and then a, an EQ assessment. And I have this like really empathetic mom and my best friend is super empathetic And I've always been that like Enneagram eight, like that rebel, like I know vulnerability, you know, and I've always just been the tough one. And my, I just remember my whole life, my mom's like, it would not hurt you to show just the slightest bit of empathy for people. (laughs) So I just have like whimsically sort of programmed myself to be like, well, I'm not really empathetic. So Kylie called me one day and she's like, you need to stop. You're perfectly normal. You're you're yeah. perfectly empathetic. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's probably true. Well, I'm I'm married to an eight. So I get to share space with all of, all of the that. tremendous energy. And yes, I know, I know the heart that's buried <laughs> within the eight. I can't that so, actually really moves towards caring for people when they're at their mature place. I'm really enthralled with like the male eight. Along with the hunter and gatherer and protect. I mean, there's some things there I think the male eight has that I maybe I don't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's fascinating for sure. Well, um, I've, I've always read, well, I mean, there's so many people who write on the Enneagram. I would be interested if you feel resonance with this, that writers will say that the female eight has some of the hardest time being accepted and finding her place within society because it runs against gender norms and like 
you know, male AIDS can be difficult to deal with, but we're kind of like, oh, let's celebrate, you know, this like. Oh, yeah. You're tough. He's tough. Yeah. Have you found that to be true? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I'm, I'm very, um, very inquisitive about it now because I look, I'm, I'm of the age where it's fun to look back over your life. And I jokingly said, like, I get a seven year itch or seven to 10 year itch. Like I lasted in Walmart for 10 years and I was always able to write things off as being when I first got there, I was young. I was also hired from um, as a college graduate, which 80 to 90% of their managers were not. So I could write stuff off that way. I could, then I moved a lot. So you're not from around here. Or there was always something to put it under. Mm. But I do think, and, and like female managers, I used to joke, we'd have these giant corporate meetings where half of the company would fly in. There was never a line at the ladies' room. <laughs> It was always yeah. very much rewarded that I could hang and be like one of the guys in that mm-hmm. sense. Then I became a teacher and I was a different teacher than the traditional, like, you know, high school, college, enter the classroom because I had different experiences. So that was, you know, I've always kind of worn the differences, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I just, and I share this a lot um, on the podcast because I just left a role that was great for me with people that I loved. I loved the work, but the culture, I was such an outlier that I really like when you just said that, I was like, yeah, hundred percent. I just, cause yeah. they were always like, turn your volume down. Why are you so negative? And I'm like, it's not negative if I come to you with a problem and a solution, <laughs> but they're like, you're talking about the bad stuff. We don't do that here. Everything's good. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. I have a dear friend um, who's who's a female eight as well. Uh, her name is Megan, and I saw like a it popped up on my Instagram feed. And it was it was like product placement, but it was somebody drinking from a mug that said, um, "You should see my active bitch face." And and I was like, Megan, this is she's always taking flack for people being like, you know, like you just look upset. And she's like, "This is my face, it's my right? Face? Like, are you kidding me?" Oh, I'm always like the professor. Everyone's like, you need to go talk to Anna now. (laughs) It's time for you to have the real talk. Like no more of this coddling thing. This pussyfooting around. That's right. No more nice guys. Let's go talk to Anna. (laughs) So I made you my um, goal over the last part of this, especially like in August when you were on um, with Kylie, I was like, gosh, I just remember how great you were to talk to back mm-hmm. in February or in the January, first part of February when we were together. And Lifeti- Lifetimes ago. Oh my goodness. Years. I know. Like March was years, years long. Um, and I've really thoroughly enjoyed all of your content and your, I'm telling you, like, I just go through your blog topics and I'm like, oh, I mean, it's just like, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Like, I, I love the fact, let's see, I'm going to try and get all this right. So jump in if I, if I nail one wrong. College athlete? I, I was, I was a rower on the okay. team. So you have to have a certain amount of motivation, dedication, and, and your life somewhat together. Political science major. So uh, welcome to 2020. That's got to be definitely interesting totally. to have a, a business. You have an MBA. So you have a business lens. You have a political science lens. And now you have empathy. Um, just 
tunnel which, vision. Which just means that I can have a lot of frustration. Oh my goodness. I can't. Uh, yeah. Like, oh, and you're currently working on a master's in divinity. Um, that has been indefinitely tabled. I was doing okay. that concurrently with starting um, my business. So that might be something I'll pick up again. Okay. Um, let me put it this way. I was two courses into it. Okay. And now it's on an indefinite pause. Which I can understand. Interest. Yes. Definitely. I, mean, I can, I when, can when understand it came, that. When it came to uh, cultivating business context or uh, learning how to conjugate in Hebrew, I thought perhaps <laughs> Hebrew can wait. And how fantastic to feed the family. That's right. <laughs> to not. There's, there's nothing like a dead language. How about yeah. not conjugating verbs in Hebrew and I, going out and earning I, a living? Actually, it's fascinating. You might find this with um, learners at different stages of life. But like mid-30s, you know, I've like launched a whole bunch of people into the world. I've had hard stuff happen. And to go back to grad school, there was a part of me that, um, and and this is this is also rooted, I'm an Enneagram type three. Mm. But like I was getting graded. And there was this part of me that just like arose and was like, who are you to grade me? Like, are you kidding me? You're going to like, especially if it was like reflective essays. I was like, right. are you kidding me? So, yeah, I teach just, people how to do this. It was just interesting <laughs> to be like, reflection. that is different than 22 year old Lisa. Yeah. Man, man. yeah. Life I, I um, started this new role and had to go through like professor training and you know then we were online so we have people have to come through and do quality measures on our stuff and somebody said you're only making these online assignments for these graduate students worth one point nobody's going to do anything for one point and I thought oh you don't understand what it's like to be in grad school because They'll do it. I either want the point or I don't. Because if there's four points and you give me three, now we got to fight. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now we have to have a conversation. Just, just do the one. Just do the one point. You'd be amazed how much trouble that saves everybody. Is it true? So you have um, kind of a very holistic vibe about you. You garden, you do yoga, you've been a holistic life coach. Like you're, you have this just phenomenal um, breadth and depth of experience about you. You've traveled a lot. I think that's so fantastic. I always find the people that I am able to have better conversations with and have a more broad worldview are the people who've been places and experienced other people's ways of life, other people's struggles and seen things. So things like Nairobi and Ghana, Fiji, it's fantastic. So that stuff alone makes you, you know, like super interesting, able to relate. I can see that whole thread of, you know, because I talk to a lot of people in their um, skill set, like with empathy, I don't have to necessarily ask you, like, how did you land on helping business people, right? Because I, again, it just is a really natural fit for you. But then you went through something personally that, had to have taken you into a, a completely different realm of of empathy and and understanding this and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit if you're comfortable with talking a little bit about that journey and how you've been able to and how you channel that into like all of these other things that you have because I would think that after I have been through what you have been through, and this could be my eight coming out, I would have such little patience for people that want to whine. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, 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 I know this is not a contest, but I'm winning, okay? You need to sit down and listen. <laughs> it's, um, 
you know, it's interesting to hear uh, someone else recount your biography um, because it does make me think, I mean, I definitely in my, in my mid twenties felt very competent, you know, like we, we had traveled, we lived internationally, you know, and like you said, I was the person who like, I got up for 4.30 AM workouts and two a days. And like, if you work hard enough, you will get what you want um, is very much both the paradigm of like the American dream and my lived experience as, you know, an upper class white uh, American woman who had been given a lot of um, privileges. And even, you know, I was on a full ride scholarship to business school and there are very few people that get to have that. And so I, I felt like I was riding high. The only, um, the only little bit of a, like a hitch, IU had offered me this fantastic scholarship and I said, yes. And I was going. And a week later, I found out that I was unexpectedly pregnant with our uh, third child. Uh, Yeah, that was, that was not in our plans. Um, But again, I had this like breezy confidence of someone who was used to um, doing things easily and well. And I, we, we had lived in Nairobi with young children before. And I remember pitching to the, uh, to the Dean of Student Services um, saying, you know, you should totally let me go on this student study trip to Ghana with my two-week-old baby because I know I've had babies in Africa before. Like, they travel really easily. They're pretty quiet if you nurse them. You know, and, and I was really lobbying hard, and, and maybe they were going to say yes. Um, but midway through my first semester, I found out at my 20-week scans, this was in October of 2010, um, that the little girl who I was carrying, Mercy, um, she had she had a pretty profound birth defect. It's a it's a category of defects called a neural tube defect. So it happens super early on. Um, and her specific condition was an encephalocele. So she had this large fluid-filled sac on the back of her head that we could see. Um, and with that condition, there's this really wide range of outcomes. Um, sometimes it's it's operable with just mild side effects. Sometimes it's terminal. There's a wide degree in the middle. So we were, you know, in, in the midst of doing business school and still parenting two young children. We were coming up from Bloomington to Indianapolis for all of these specialist visits with like neurosurgeons and neurologists and hospice care and touring the NICU and trying to hold with this openness like... There were all sorts of things that could happen when Mercy is born. Um, she was born on February 15th in 2011. Um, and we everybody was waiting for this outside the womb MRI. That was going to be, um, you know, kind of the, the key data point to know what we could do or not do. Um, and it was really clear. So that was in her first day, uh, that any intervention would be doing things to her and not for her. Um, she had this hollow spinal column. She wasn't breathing on her own, but she's this beautiful little girl. You know, she, she, she looked more like me than any of my other children. Um, and we got to be with her for eight days. We had relatives and family with her around the clock. Um, We got to take her to home hospice care and she died after eight days, um, which has repercussions in my story to like so many areas of life and influence um, as it relates to what I do now. It was also, um, I was no longer a person who 
was able to do things easily the way I had done them before, you know, uh, amongst many other things, it was this profound experience for me of being less than like, I was not the graduate student. I wanted to be, I was not the parent. I was not the partner. I felt like a crappy sister. I felt like a bad friend. And I felt like that was the best I could do. Like that was me giving 110% was still like so profoundly, um, dissatisfying. And I also, you know, so at the same time as there's this strain of like, uh, life is so hard. Um, I also really realized how much I, I needed a community of people. Um, by and large, I was incredibly well supported and that has been a great foundation out of which to launch into my work. But also, man, I, there are so many people who I don't even think they knew how much they missed me when they missed me. Um, so that, that lived experience, uh, and I can talk more about, you know, how that grew into the work that I do now. Um, also, were you somebody that was open to having support before that? Yeah, I, I was, um, I, I'm pretty communal, uh, not by nature. My parents were both youngest children and like my mother, she was like, it was never about picking up your own mess. It was always like, we all shepherd this space together. We all pick up. So I had, I had meaningful friendships. I had people who, you know, I actually, um, when I was 12, had a really horrible horseback riding accident that launched me into like multiple surgeries. Um, I like over the course of years, they thought I would never regain use of my hand. I had this radial nerve palsy. So I had like, even in my childhood, some profound uh, experience of being like, life can change on a dime. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know. So, um, but I mean, it's as an adult, and even I've, I've heard people say like, we, we have language. Like if you are a, if you're a partner who loses your partner, you are a widow. If you are a child who loses a parent, you are an orphan, but it is almost as though language itself uh, fails because we don't really have a word for a parent that loses a child. Um, and, and something that I say, it's not, it's not actually about stacking up. You know, even you said at the beginning, it's not, everybody's grief is enough for them in the moment. And really like your brain is so on fire, like in just, it's like lower functioning, you're freaking out, you know, you're not in your higher brain functioning that even someone like, I don't know if your dog has been hit by a car, if someone comes to you in that moment where you're like, this is the dog I've loved for like 10 years. And someone's Mm -hmm. like, they're there people are starving in Africa in the midst of civil war. You, you're going to be yeah, like, like no. screw you. Like, that <laughs> anything to me. Like, even if your rational brain, if you put like two pictures in front of you and we're like, would you like to live in suburban Indianapolis and have your dog die? Or would you like to live in Ethiopian civil war? And ne- you'd be like, right. well, maybe I could, but like in the moment no. it just fails and just makes you look like a jerk. <laughs> Which is not, empathy at all <laughs> well, not even yeah. close yeah you're not if, if that's what you're going for you're gonna miss people all the way I call I call that avatar the cheer up Cheryl who is always looking for the bright side um and one of her favorite turns of phrase or him 
uh, it's not gender specific, except right. for the memorable acronym. <laughs> it's at least, you know, yeah. for me, after Mercy died, people would be like, well, at least you still have Magnus and Ada, which was absolutely true and still super good and never made me feel better. It was, right. I was like, yeah, but still, like, still sad about Mercy. Right. And just, just to believe. So, I mean, yeah. I, okay. So I have to tell you as a marketer, mm-hmm. these personas, are to me the best well i know a little bit cheesy too so i love like i get life from these fix it frank and all of these personas like i am excited about them i have to tell you well thank you and i i you know i really like them too and here's what i like because you know it's my stuff so just in the marketing you're supposed to say you like your stuff but What I like is that it actually allows people to connect with uh, some really non-productive behaviors outside of the context of shaming connotations. Because if we talk about how Buck Up Bobby can really wreak havoc and be a jerk, you know, Buck Up Bobby, who's always wanting you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and have a stiff upper lip. Like when I can talk about being a Buck Up Bobby instead of oh, yeah, I'm doing that thing to my kids again, where when we're trying to get out the door, I'm like, I don't have time for you. We just have to get out the door. Like, I don't care if you're sad. I don't care. Like, that's totally going to buck up Bobby. And somebody could talk to me about those behaviors and they could be like, hey, Lisa, you know, you're really shaming your kids and you're not giving them space. And that's a perfectly valid conversation. But if we could talk about how buck up Bobby is a jerk and how I am being like him, it gives me a little bit of distance and perspective mm-hmm. without feeling fully implicated in the bad behavior. So, well, because when you read through these people, you can go, oh, I know, I know a fix it Frank. <laughs> oh. I've been. <laughs> Well, and I used to, I've even started using different language when I teach because I used to like just identify with a couple. I I would be like, I'm primarily a commiserating Candace or a fix it Frank during times of stress. But like, as I keep like teaching and I keep observing myself, I'm like, oh no, I am omnivorous in my consumption of these like I have been all of these characters and especially in the stress of 2020. As it is so prolonged, oh. it's allowing an almost artistic manifestation of our <laughs> bad behaviors. Like you can you can paint with a varied colored palette in how oh, yeah. all of your characters in a pandemic are a whole That's, new yeah. level of character, aren't they? Ooh. I I manifest legions in my stress. <laughs> so I have talked a lot in this podcast. So my golden ticket philosophy, right, is the really that, and I've seen so many people struggle with this from high school students all the way up to fully functioning adults that on paper looked fantastic, but have a really hard time telling their own story, understanding themselves, talking about themselves, you know, whether it's an elevator pitch or their why or what what is life-giving to them or what they're, you know, passions are what they are about and then really fully accepting themselves loving themselves and then feeling that empowerment because I feel like that is when you are so empowered that you can go out and start making a difference in the lives of others so I am incredibly intrigued where when how empathy kind of weaves its way through here is it empathy and I'm really also very um interested 
personally, and just when I talk about this, when do we develop empathy for ourselves? Is that the, is that a hard one? Do you find a lot of times? Like, I would, I just want to hear all your thoughts on all of this stuff. Yeah. Let me come at that sideways because when you talk about my love language sideways, (laughs) (laughs) that's how I do everything. (laughs) When you talk about that, that journey of like being able to stand in your story, who you are, you know, and, and in business, like you're, you're packaging that in towards a certain end, but it needs to be from an organic place. Um, I'm, I'm going to come back and touch on the incredible importance of the voice in which you speak to yourself, because even as I have these avatars, um, sometimes when I teach people, they can think, oh, just socialize me to interact with people better. Like, we don't need to do all that internal stuff. Like, I'll buy the Brene Brown book. I'll, I'll watch, you know, whatever. Like, let's not talk about this. But um, we all have an empathy toolkit that we have been socialized. It's based on your, your personality. It's based on how people comforted you or didn't comfort you as a kid. It's based on what you adopted to survive the hard things that came your way. And everybody has had some level of it. Some people have had more than others, but we all, like nobody actually likes to be in pain and vulnerability and out of control. So we have ways in which we are, we're dealing with other people, which is oftentimes when I'm called into companies, but that stems first from how you are motivating and dealing with yourself, because you can't divide the two. Like the way in which you speak to yourself, you will invariably be translating that to other people how it comes back to how you sculpt your story. Uh, A profound thing that I realize in my internal monologue is I am totally a buck up Bobby. Um, I, you know, it's interesting because people would think like, well, you must be incredibly naturally empathetic and like very touchy feely. Um, It's actually something that I do because I know how important it is. Actually, the way I speak to myself is a very strong narrative of working hard and sucking it up. And that's like conditioned by athletics. It's conditioned by my, you know, my father, who is the child of immigrants and an alcoholic. And like you don't whine and you keep pushing hard. So when I'm in business school and we're pitching ourselves and I'm having these horrible things happen, like I'm so frustrated with myself. I'm so disappointed in myself that I can't just keep pushing. And at the same time, I know I can't. I know that I will tank like my marriage and I have enough self-awareness through counseling, through general, like to be like, I can't just push through this. I will torch everything. So I have to admit this less than and weakness. And even like at the end of business school. So, you know, I, I did really well in my degree. I held, you know, positions of leadership. I was on full scholarship. Like I should go into recruitment. That's why everyone goes to business school to be recruited to a better job. And I just decided, like, I just knew in my gut, I was like, I am not going to jump into the recruiting, you know, like spin with, you know, I have not had time to grieve. I've just pushed through. I was pregnant with my fourth child upon graduating. So this child that came after Mercy and I, and I just took a big step back and I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm going to take a year off, you know, whatever. And it felt incredibly shaming and horrible. And I had to get off LinkedIn entirely because it tormented me. I was just like all these other people that have their stuff together and I don't have my stuff together. Um, And really like that work of empathy towards self, 
the work of, you know, beginning to put the pieces together of being in counseling, of doing grief work, um, giving yourself the grace to show up better for yourself and everybody else. To me, that's harder than going out and grinding and pushing. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely can feel (laughs) like it. And and I can still, I was just telling my sister who's, she's in the midst of her own, like beginning to get back out there networking after some of the stuff of COVID-19. And I remember it was now, I don't know, two, two and a half years ago of going to that first uh, Kelly Business School, like uh, it, it was one of just their, their regional like mixers. And I had to do so much self-coaching to be like, you have every right to be in this room as much as anyone else. And it was funny, like a year later, they had me on their Kelly School podcast and I'm sitting with the dean of the business school. And this was this man that like, like the specter of the Kelly School for some reason, like my particular personality, that voice of like buck up Bobby of just pushing through. I I had in my mind for years of being like, and and it's funny even to say it, but this is the sort of stuff that drives you mentally. Mm -hmm. I thought they gave me a scholarship they must be so disappointed and feel like they made such a bad choice because I haven't done anything to like bring esteem to the school. I'm just like toiling away. But like if to really, it it was that concise, they must be so disappointed in me. And I'm on the podcast and I'm talking about the work I do in empathy and how it's like really exciting in HR and how I'm you know, generating business and, and, and the Dean like looks at me. And at the end, he was like, your school is proud of you. Your school is proud of you. And, you know, I got like a mug, like nothing, but I'm walking out. And I was like, was this what I was really waiting like six years to hear? Because it was nice, but it it was kind of like, oh, I, I guess I, I got it. And I realized like all the things that actually helped me get through the hard stuff of grief and loss, it was not what I thought I wanted. We have these things Mm. that we think it was this really like human consistent, you know, it's the stuff that I teach people to say, it's not high cost. It's not even that high touch. It's just this orientation toward, I was like, you know what got me to this moment of being able to receive the accolades of my school that I thought were my highest end? Dozens of people along the way that just like help me get there. So it was just one more voice, but it came at the right time. Right. Right. Well, and to be like, I, if he would have said that to me, like a year into it, I needed so much more than that. Like I thought that was the one thing I was fixating on. Like, is my school disappointed in me? (laughs) Be like, there's so much, the support needs to be so much more wider ranging than that. That was nice. But one piece of a mosaic. Right. That you had no control over. That is not, you couldn't have gone and sought that out or called and said, how y'all feeling about me down there? Like, that (laughs) was not going to check a box for you. (laughs) It's such a base represent. I'm an Enneagram type three. Like, please tell me I'm doing a good job. Right. (laughs) I just need to hear it. Very childish. (laughs) Hey, you guys, am I doing okay? But yeah, I look at that. And on the flip side, I see so many people that try to return to education because that was maybe the last time they felt like they were in forward motion or that, you know, I joke all the time. We spend from five, age five to like 22 in school 
So when you get to your late twenties, your early thirties and stuff is like chaotic and sideways and not going to what you had planned. You're like, Oh, I'll just go back to the classroom. And I think. Because it's laid out for you. You, Mm -hmm. you get it in like semester chunks and it's very digestible. And especially if you're good at the game. Well, and and then back to the grade, right. You get the grade, get the, yeah. And you get the progress. It just hits all your, um, all those buttons that you were used to having pushed all those years. And I just would watch these people. And I think you're not actually investing you're prolonging or you're projecting or you're distracting, but you're not like, this is not the right direction. And those would always be the people that I would, when I would have conversations with them or we'd talk about their resume or we'd talk about their, you know, what their ultimate goal was that I would just think, Oh, you probably needed some therapy and some life coaching. You <laughs> could have just saved all this tuition. <laughs> yep. Well, and that's part, especially in 2020, it's worth just dropping like the, the asterisks. Mm-hmm. I feel like destigmatizing counseling is such an important thing you know like my i have a good marriage i love my husband we have been through hard stuff and parenting four children in the midst of the pandemic is hard and it brings up all kinds of the previous hard stuff that we've already been to counseling for Mm -hmm. and we were in a week long of intensive counseling uh beginning of september and it was absolutely what we needed and i've just you know he has actually really led me well and being like what if we need to like periodically go to counseling for the rest of our lives that doesn't mean that we're failures that means that we're getting what we need to keep doing well and so for sure EAPs individual counselors it's so helpful especially if you have a plan that like helps subsidize it well I had a friend the other day um tell me you know she's like I feel like I feel like I had a choice I could either be numb and go through life numb and the bad stuff and the anxiety and none of that bothered me, but I didn't get to breathe in the good stuff. I didn't get to be present. I didn't get to experience anything or I can go therapy. And you know, the first few times you go to therapy, you got to rip all that, you know, you got to just, here's my stuff. Here's my stuff. And let me, some of it's stuck. Let me peel it off and (laughs) lay it down so we can poke around on it. And it just, you know, and she's like, but I would go through this first several, you know, weeks of therapy just to be able to experience the good stuff and truly laugh and mean it or cry or, you know, just to have that. I think that's just so important. It really is. I love that you talk about, um, on a couple of places, I think it's on your uh, LinkedIn that like empathy is the biggest leadership skill, most important leadership skill in 2020, but the biggest trend is mental health. Mm, And I, I like, talk to me about how those two things are fully related. Well, I am so glad that so much more attention is being played to mental health, um, access to EAP benefits, you know, all kinds of preventative measures. That is incredibly important. And I think we're seeing that rise um, because there's all kinds of stresses that are coming out. Uh, I also think that we can celebrate an aspect of people being more in touch with what is bringing them pain. I think that there has been, you know, um, we've talked about just, you know, the grind and the suppression and the lack of holism and like you're, you're valued for what you produce at work and don't talk to us about anything that would get in the way of you producing. So uh, I see the trends in mental health and awareness and the training that's being done as good. Um, I bless and celebrate all resources that are flooding in. 
there's this reality though a lot of things like EAPs are sending people, you know, giving, they're giving people external resources to support their mental health, which is great. May it continue. But there's the reality that like, whether you're showing up in person at work or doing it via Zoom, we are spending more time in contact with our colleagues than we are with anyone else. And the fact is, most people are, from a leadership perspective, they're woefully under-equipped to deal with like somebody going through a hard time and not default to all these like types of behaviors that, you know, are actually squashing somebody from sharing or making them feel ashamed or even just processing them. You know, I, one of my, one of my podcast guests, he was talking about after his daughter's suicide and he said, you know, like my boss would check in with me, but I always knew that he had like two minutes to check in. It was really like, Hey, are you good enough that we can just get through our checklist? And he said, that felt so crappy. Like set aside a time where actually there's no agenda, but just me, because this has rocked my world. And there are some data points that are being put to this. So in the 2020 uh, empathy in the workplace survey, I just want to make sure my numbers are right. Which I happen to have. I happen to have. I realize, I realize like I, I quoted it wrong by a percentage point or two. 76% of employees surveyed in 2020 said that empathy led them to being more productive employees. So they said, hey, you show me more empathy. I'm going to be more productive at work. Only 50% of CEOs agreed. of employees also said that increased empathy would lead to lower turnover. Again, only 50% of CEOs surveyed agreed. And so that's just one study in the midst of many studies that are being done that are pointing towards the same sorts of things, like how you respond actually matters. And it doesn't just matter because you want to be a good human or because you're actualizing your values. Although those are really important things. If you want to operate with consistency, it also does affect your bottom line, how you keep people, how you build trust. If trust is, you know, and you look at like Harvard business study review, like trust in business to be able to allow for innovation, for progress, for communication. Like if you are shutting down and violating people's trust in the midst of some of the hardest, most complex points of their life, like you, it actually does come out in your bottom line. And that, you know, just from those two data points, that disconnect still with senior leadership of people saying, we want this, we need this. And, you know, the executive suite saying, eh, maybe, you know, I, right. I also do executive coaching with CEOs because they are getting feedback that they're not very good at this. And, It's important in all levels of your organization, but the most transformative, lasting change comes from a leadership team who says we're all in on this and we need to get better too. Because that allows the freedom. Like when you have a leader who is willing to share about, you know, like if you have a CEO who can say something like, I remember when I was 25 and I was just starting out in the business, my grandmother died. And my supervisor didn't give me any time off and it felt really bad. And that's not the sort of place that we, and I remember how hard it was to have to show up to work and just keep grinding or even, you know, to bring it to current, like it's been really hard for me. My college age daughter is home with COVID and it's hard to juggle. That allows the space for employees to be able to give voice to some of what's going on instead of just 
burying it. Well, and you can't wait to have the conversation when the person across from you is experiencing something. I feel like that's important. I mean, communication is my number one strength. So I feel like we should over communicate everything. But I think it's important to talk about that stuff all the time. Because even if I don't have a daughter with COVID, or I haven't lost somebody to know that you as my supervisor understand struggle or understand what's going on. Or when those things do happen to me in that moment where you were talking about like your brain's on fire, at least, you know, Hey, I got to call my boss, but I know this person has been through some stuff. Yeah. It's important. So you'll appreciate this because I know you love storytelling and this is right along with, and again, misquoting getting things wrong because this has been several years since I went to this session, but I was with some students at a conference, social media conference in St. Louis and we'd like everybody split off and go to different sessions so we could compare notes. And I ended up in this storytelling session. And then I walk in and I see GoDaddy on the screen. And the first thing I think of is Dana pa- Danica Patrick commercials. And I was like, oh, here we go. Like, what are we talking about in here? So I sit down. This wonderful woman gets up and starts talking about the fact that she has done all of these documentaries about underrepresented communities and like she was so cool and then she's like so GoDaddy calls me in and and this is when I set up straighter my chair because I'm like what is about to happen here and she said they were having a ton of problems with their um how fast they were growing and they had all these offices all over the world and people weren't communicating and they had all of this really cultural divide she's like they were having a ton of problems so they gave me some meager um budget and they said like help us fix it. (laughs) So fast forward, she takes a group in this one city. She goes to an empty comedy club. Like she's like, it's what you imagine smelled. There's like, you know, sticky beer on the floor. There's like one wooden stage with one really bright light and a microphone. And she tells these um, managers, these leaders, um, you have to get up and you have to talk for three minutes about this topic that's on your note card, but it cannot be about work. It cannot, it has to be personal. And she's like, first time they went through, they're standing up there, they're, you know, she's like, you can barely see the audience and the lights in your face. She's super awkward. They were stammering and stuttering and whatever. And so they did a round and she's like, no real, you know, breakthroughs. And she's like, second round, the chief financial officer of this office gets, like, he's a part of this big division. He's like one of the top three people. He gets up and he says out loud, my wife is struggling with stage four breast cancer. And she's like, the room just, like, you could just feel it. Nobody knew. And then the next person that got up, like that opened this can, right? Like the next person that got up this, the next person that got up that, this lady from HR, who's like this bubbly ray of sunshine is back from um, a tour in Iraq. And like, everybody thought she was fine. And she's like, I, she just like got really vulnerable. And she said, from that moment on, And the work that they did, like to follow this thread all the way through is amazing. The thing that I love, I give GoDaddy tons of credit on because I'm sitting there as a marketer thinking, what did you do with all this? Because they started a blog. They had all these like internal discussion groups and support groups and people that were spouses of deployed service. I mean, it was incredible where they went with this. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like that's a lot of good content you could be putting out (laughs) like on your careers page or whatever. And she's like, no, they just wanted it internal to humanize their culture and to bring people together. And I just, I thought 
for one minute about all these big, huge companies or small companies or just whatever, but how we could just do better at that. But then I go back to people sitting in MBA classrooms that can't tell you about themselves or articulate as to what their why is. And I just, I, I hope we figure that out. I hope it's the, the ability for people like you to come in or for us to feel better or this new generation coming up that are, you know, more transparent, more authentic and don't have some of those stigmas. I don't know what it is, but man, we have got to get there with the, the empathy, the trust and the vulnerability at work, you know, because I love that. We have to be doing that at home too. We have to be doing that with everybody that we care about. And why wouldn't we take it to work? Well, and think of that, that first really brave person who was like, I'm just, I'm going to go there. And lots of times there's the power differential at play. You know, it is hard to feel like you're going to like be totally vulnerable and be like, I'm messy and I'm not great. If you're a lower level person who feels like the culture is not going to absorb this, which is where it's incredibly powerful. If it is someone who is, you know, in a leadership position, who's able to make that safe. And, you know, you're talking, it's funny, something that I, I often, I, I say every now and then as I'm, you know, like presenting the concept that empathy is actually a set of skills that can be taught. You can just get better at it. It's not this fixed entity. Like there are empathetic people and they're not empathetic people and they will never cross pollinate. Uh, It's actually a continuum. You can get better if you want to, you know, put the time and effort into learning. And I actually think back to my MBA experience where we were placed within these, these cohorts uh, to be developed um, over the course of two years. And, uh, I was one of the only females in this group of like eight to 10 guys. And like we started out in, in the, and the cohort was supposed to be like soft skills, you know, also progression, just general, like we had a great coach, but I looked at these guys and I was like, these guys are so bad with people. They're so bad with people. And they were, they worked so bad. Like there was one that was cocky. There was one that was nonverbal, like it, just all the things I was like, these guys are the worst. Um, <laughs> now I'm wondering if any of them will ever listen. But we or got a lot better together. Like to... You know who you are. <laughs> if uh, anyone would like to hire you. <laughs> if, if anyone... But over the course of, of two years, they got so much better. Like because they learned these soft skills, and it was because it was connected to making more money. Like you will be more hireable, you will be a more desirable manager if you pay attention to these skills and that got their attention because it was to tied to a success metric and to be like, yeah, you know what? I'm really going to pay attention when you teach about asking better questions and then I'm going to practice it. And then I'm going to think about doing it. And I I was like, man, look at, you know, me too. I also got better in the midst of it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't just come down solely to incentives, but the fact is we don't like, two years of an MBA program. It's all about managing people. We did not spend five minutes of a single class period on what is it like to manage someone when their life falls apart? Like, even as I began this work two and a half years ago, I'm looking at SHRM, you know, Mm -hmm. the Society for Human Resources Management. They didn't have any content around this stuff. And, but when I was doing focus groups and talking with like HR leaders and managers, they're dealing with this stuff all the time. You know, what do we do when we have two people on staff and they're married and one is in an abusive, you know, partner? Like, what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. And, um, 
yeah, that gets back to just, we don't train for it because we don't measure it and we don't compensate around it. We just hope that maybe, maybe you'll be good if you need to be in the moment. And we put out fires everywhere else. On a personal side of that, because that's a, that's a very vivid business scenario that I feel like I've lived quite a bit. I'm sure most people have in their professional lives, but on the personal side, I liken that to cycles, you know, like alcoholic parents, abusive parents, emotionally distant parents, you know, and you think I'm never doing that. And then all of a sudden, like you really, you want to do better. I think every, that's every parent wants to do better for their kids. And then you, you seem to have to, really be intentional about those guardrails. Like, where are you showing up? And, Mm. and it's again, a different incentive, but it kind of goes back to having to look in the mirror every day and how you talk to yourself and how you understand yourself and how you're able to be, you know, very honest and open with yourself on where you are in those things. And I've, cause I've often just marveled at people like, how did you overcome all of that? Right. And, and then I look at other people and I think, how have you not recognized that yet? Yeah. Well, (laughs) and usually they've, they've had an aspirational person in their lives. They have read a powerful book. They have gone through counseling. They've done some combination of all of those things. It's like, that's that's where when I train, it's like you have the tools that you have in your toolkit. Are they getting you where you want to go? And if not, what are the you know better tools that you can have in your toolkit? You know, a little bit like we said at the top of the episode, like don't say at least, it's just not a good phrase. Right. If you're a commiserating Candace, you really need to pay attention when somebody starts sharing a story of something that is hard that you don't jump in with your own story about, oh, yeah, me too. Like you'll steal the narrative. People feel totally missed. They're just things that like people begin to incorporate. And again, as a recovering commiserating Candace, I still coach myself in real time. Like, listen, listen for longer, listen for longer than you feel like you want to listen even longer, (laughs) maybe share a little bit of your story right at the end, if at all. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that is a muscle we have always got to keep in action to get it where we need it to be better, I think. And if you miss it, if you miss, like I I talk about in my trainings, even somebody who's maybe listening right now, you might think like, oh, I am a fix it, Frank. Oh, I totally am a cheer up chair. And I did it last week to, you know, my mom or to my coworker. There is deep power in like a self-aware apology of saying, Mm -hmm. you know what? I did that to you. That was not my best self. And really I'm working to not do that again. And I'm sorry. You know, I wish I would have listened better. I wish I wouldn't have done that. And, you know, that that can be really powerful in relationships. Well, I think, and I've always said, if people know you, if they know your heart and you're vulnerable, those, those moments are so forgivable. Mm-hmm. Those apologies are like a soothing balm, right? Like for someone to come back and go, hey, you know what? I was thinking about that conversation we had last week. I think I might have like not done a great job with you on that. That is so amazing for right. all everyone involved. And I think about it, I'm like, I'm thinking about it, like how I interact with my mom a lot of times or my child or my husband. But man, can you imagine like your boss coming to your desk? <laughs> and yeah. Being like, hey, you know, <laughs> I, I was thinking I about that. that I did that poorly. And- yeah. And I'd be like, you were thinking about our conversation. Like, you know, just, it's, it- I can't imagine. 
Because that's the thing that's been like a trigger for me in this golden ticket thing, putting it like taking it from the college classroom Mm -hmm. into the world is I much like those stats you read. The one that sticks with me and like keeps me with one eye open at night is the lack of engagement in our employees in the United States. I'm pre COVID, right? Like, and I used to be really mad at corporate America. Like it's 28% of people come to work and feel valued or like they contribute or that they're understood. And I'm like, shame on you, corporate America. But then the more I start spending time with adults and thinking about this, I'm like, wait a minute, shame on all of us. Cause we're yeah. not all showing up very authentically sometimes. Like, right. It's true. Well, and all the elevated stress of this year has only turned up the volume on people just surviving. Okay, so where does that, like, I'm watching people get pandemic fatigue. I watched people get, you know, racial injustice fatigue. I'm watching people, because we got these fun labels now, we can slap all over everything. Like, where do, is there a tipping point with this empathy (laughs) fatigue? Like, are we, are we coming out, like, in your mind, are we coming out of 2020 better? Are we coming out of 2020 collectively better? Are we coming out at all? (laughs) I feel like someday. I think it's it's so hard to have any perspective in the midst of it. So it, it will be a question for pundits, sociologists, reflective people in the years to come. I mean, what I hope you know, I was I was talking to someone who's entering the job search, and they had had a, a really profoundly, um, you know, it, sexual abuse that had happened in their life that you know they had been raped, and it was horrible. Um, and I said to this individual, I said, you know, yeah, they're not planning to go into job interviews, saying, <laughs> not um, leading, <laughs> right? But um, I said to this person, um, you know, if anything, I think that they're is a lot more of uh, an openness in the paradigm that like hard stuff has happened to tons of very like deserving people, excellent, competent, you know, like it's, it's been no respecter, like hard things this year has been no respecter of persons. And I hope that it is leading to not just, you know, a survivalist mentality of we've got to like lower our standards until we get th- through this and like just get by but actually of allowing for the humanity of the other um i i do you know you mentioned like compassion fatigue all of those things i do work and training with companies uh and have throughout you know I've, I've worked with a lot of healthcare organizations on compassion fatigue like how does that relate to empathy and whether it's with aspects of racism or showing up for other people like i i was I was talking uh, about fatigue for white people in the midst of conversations about racial injustice. And that's real. Like it's real. It's, it's hard, hard stuff. And I think a lot of people, when they first get like activated and learning about it, they're like, I'm going to make this better. I'm going to learn everything. And they dive into it. And it's, it's like, it is trying on a spiritual, emotional, social level. That's not to put that on par with the experience of black and brown Americans who have to daily live with like physical threats to their safety with generational things. But let's just talk, you know, for, for a given individual, for a white individual who's jumping into that, like it is a lot. And so what you also need to do, what differentiates adults from children is that adults know how to self-soothe, not entirely, but they know like 
how to take care of themselves. And really with compassion fatigue or fatigue in conversations about racial injustice, like if you're feeling overwhelmed, go take a nap, watch a funny TV show, engage in meaningful movement, eat good foods, and then be able to come back to meaningful causes and interactions again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the equivalent of somebody who decides like, what, what we do to get us to the point of just being like, it's too much, I give up, I'm never doing it again, which is what that fatigue can drive us to, is mm-hmm. the equivalent of somebody who's, you know, 30 pounds overweight and suddenly decides, I want to get fit. And they, you know, decide that they're going to run 10 miles a day and try to bench press like 250 in their first week. And right. it's just not sustainable. You have to be able to be like, okay, I'm going to start and it's going to feel bad and I'm going to get tired and then I'm going to rest. And then I'm going to go again because it's like a long-term goal that you don't just give up on. And and really we do that because there are people within the struggle who can't give up on their identities. Like they are, you know, they're being overlooked, marginalized. And whether that's with racial things or just people, you know, getting back to compassion fatigue who are going through like cancer diagnoses have not stopped in 2020. Mm -mm. Somebody who is mourning the death of a loved one, like that's not stopping. And we need to be able to engage, get tired, recharge, Mm -hmm. come back and engage again. Well, and I, I think I spent a lot of time looking for hope right after I figured out I wasn't going to learn a new language or bake bread from, you know, (laughs) like herbs that I found in my front yard. Or I mean, we went off the rails in March and April trying to like, we're coming out of this better, you know, like, I don't know what that was. That was not even the American spirit. That was just delusion. But I started to watch better, more vulnerable, real conversations unfolding. And I always think LinkedIn is a little more positive and uplifting in many ways than like Facebook. But there were people that were, you know, giving everyone else permission. It's okay Mm. to do this. It's okay to understand this. It's okay to let, you know, these people have this, I mean, it was, it was in in many ways, I thought we're better for each other at a distance right now than if we were all showing up in the office to try and act like nothing was wrong. Like, I feel like that just just being subversively snarky, right? Like, well, that those people are still out there. Like, (laughs) but yeah, I just, I I think it's great that you're like, who knows how we're coming out of this. You're saying you haven't learned a language. (laughs) (laughs) I've not learned a new language. I've not, you know, my closets are still a disaster like they were coming into this well, as you can see um my you could also just drop the bar for like what it means oh. to learn a language like i remember when my eldest was like four years old she maintained that she could speak chinese because she could say like two phrases that mm-hmm. she got from dora um, <laughs> the explorer and she was like i speak chinese and i was right. like ada you you can say hello in chinese right. <laughs> no I speak Chinese, so maybe you can speak another language. I, well, I, speak another I can language. hang with my 14-year-old. I'm doing pretty good on the yeet and, you know, some of those things. So ah, I give myself license for this. Yeah, this leg. <laughs> so what in your mind is when you are dealing with these fully functioning adult people who have very important jobs and they're open themselves up, whether it's by... Um, their own request to have you come in or to do the work or (laughs) someone put them in the room. At what point do you start to see the melt of 
them looking at you and listening and absorbing this as a business professional, as a leader. And then you start to see that like, oh, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Like maybe that the real person thinking about these concepts and these things in terms of their personal life and those personal relationships. Do you, is your training of a, a way that you see that happen and that growth I'm just curious, like, are people, because uh-huh. we've had a couple conversations recently on my podcast about people trying to distance the personal and the professional mm-hmm. and keeping things kind of, you know, is that healthy for us? But I just wondered, you know, as somebody who's done it, this enough, what you're seeing. It can vary by personality type, like so much. Um, there are some people that you're you're going to hook them with some numbers that allow them to think this is important enough to devote business time to. Um, that will at least get their attention. Um, I have found a couple of things. Uh, when we talk about compassion fatigue, when I start talking about like everyone is tired right now, and that is because everyone is actually experiencing grief because grief is unrealized expectation. And maybe you haven't thought of putting the term grief to what you're experiencing in 2020 and then to further unpack. And some people beyond that are experiencing trauma because trauma is tying to, you know, this much bigger narrative. And there is a moment for people like to feel that release of the language to really be like, I am tired. And maybe it's not just because, I'm a bad person. Maybe it's because I'm a grieving person. Um, So that catches some personality types. Um, They're also like when I, depending on for how long a company has engaged me um, or just the structure, sometimes there's a really robust chat function, which is great of people like jumping in and identifying like, yes, I had, you know, this happened this year. And somebody to be like, I lost somebody too. Or in that sense, like that is my favorite because you're taking like your own story and it's tying into like, I am not alone in this. This is why I really encourage like, please use the chat, like as you're resonating with something and saying that and what that can do to lay a foundation um, moving along. And then you can get a lot of people in the avatars um, as you know, they're a little cheesy, they're a little catchy and uh, it really allows people like that's a point where, um, you know, people can feel like, ah, you know, uh, but when you start describing them, they're like interrogating Edward. I am an interrogating Edward. I'm going to pull you apart with questions about like, well, why do you feel this way? And have you researched this? And have you? And uh, even I'm I'm preparing to do a session next week, and we're allowing a lot of time for like, okay, when you interact with, you know, this type with a joking Julie, how does that make you feel? And that also for people can allow this moment of like listening. And again, they're not saying like you, Patrick, are a jerk. They're like, you know, when somebody does make sarcastic side comments that undercut the validity of my emotion, it really makes me feel angry. And someone like a Patrick could be like, oh, well, I'm making people angry. File it away. Right. Not, no, yeah, that's joking Julie, who is manifesting his behavior. Mm-hmm. So good. So powerful. I love that. Yeah. One other thing that I promised myself I wanted to talk to you about because I read it and was like, it was one of those clutch your pearls moments that I thought, oh, this is why, this is why all those tingly feelings I got when I met you back in February just keep coming back every time (laughs) I find your content. But the very last line on your website under your about me section um, 
which by the way, I love how you talk about your husband um, talking about your struggles and like for somebody, you know, to be like, I'm married a very good man. Cause I'd say that all the time. Um, but I love that. Like how you describe him and everything. So you're rocking along with these like happy feels. Um, and then you say, you close with this line. I believe that we are all deformed and reformed by our encounters with pain. And I think about, I've heard you say this a lot. You said it on this um, conversation, like your pain is yours. It's, it doesn't, you don't compare it. It's not, it doesn't have to be bigger than anybody's. It doesn't have to fit into certain levels, but how do we know when we're ready to be reformed or when we're ready to, I mean, you've been through some just incredibly painful things and they don't leave you. Yeah. Like how how do we know that? Is that through what you've and I have talked about tonight through the just the talking about it and the support system and the therapy and just mm. making each day go? Or is there a way like yeah. what is your recommendation to people who and like you're seeing, like maybe they don't even know they're in a lot of pain? If only there was like one golden moment where you suddenly like almost like climbing a mountain where you're then on the other side. Yeah. Um Maybe, maybe it goes that plateau. way. Yeah. Maybe it goes like, that way for some people. I don't want to say, I don't want to say that that can't happen because there can be powerful moments of like introspective spiritual community, like interventions that actually do um, make you feel that. I, I think, I think the first stages of grief and loss are intense and that is not just death, you know, any grief or loss, like you are, you are surviving. And that's, you know, they talk about stages of grief. Like it's, it's angry. It's tumultuous tempestuous, you know, any word you want to attach. Mm -hmm. Um, Or even toxic relationships, right? Yeah. Toxic relationships. You don't walk out of the relationship and you're like, whew, that was, well, I'm glad that's done. Yeah. I mean, that's with you forever. And, and for a while, like I actually, even within my own story, really resisted talking about meaning in a particular way, because I think we want to talk about meaning. Like you want to give that to somebody who's going through something hard and that it comes through in all kinds of like trite cliches about like, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. And like, this will only make you stronger. And those things can even be true, but it's just like how we are. Like it just, it it came off as really flat, Mm -hmm. like not dynamic language. Even I had a friend one time tell me she had just a horrible thing happen. And I said something like, I can't imagine what you're going through. And she's like, well, you should try. And I was like, what? And she's like, I don't want to hear people tell me you can't imagine. You could try. Try. (laughs) And I was like, oh, man. Like, okay. Like, I didn't even think. And really, she's like. Kudos to her for being able to be honest. I'm sorry I just snapped at you. But people have been saying that to me and it's bothering me. And I was like, I I cannot imagine my life today had she not had that moment with me. Right. Because that does have to maybe rub on people. And I thought, oh, I thought I was being real empathetic and supportive by telling you, I just little old me can't even fathom what you must be going through. And she was like, well, you could try. And I thought, well, and, and as a side note, even as I teach about empathy, like there are general principles which will hit most people a lot of the time but you always have to like much more than some like empathy principle of like saying something like i'm so sorry like somebody could say like i hate people saying that i'm so sorry like you have mm-hmm. to you it's always oriented towards that person if they say they don't right. like it pivot to them um deform- well and sometimes they might be yelling at you because of yeah it's right, sometimes, you know? <laughs> sometimes they might just be acting up yeah. deformed and reformed um 
I think that this is actually where empathy and community play a really important part because there's something that you can give to like someone will walk their own internal journey. Um, but your internal journey is always shaped like we are communal creatures. We are meant to live and be known in community. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And people will be able to like speak into and mirror back and be able to say, like, I see you in all of your messiness right now. And, you know, I, I'm here with you in it. And I don't think that this will be the only place that you'll ever be at. Because it's not like actually every sad story, like somebody comes out stronger. Like sometimes it's just sad and sad for mm-hmm. lots of years and it and it leads to more trauma and it leads you to become like a really like ugly, like cruel person. It's not like there's a guaranteed like, well, if you've been hurt, it will become something beautiful for you. But if you are like doing the work and paying attention, um, my spiritual journey has been a big part of that for me. But, you know, also community of like continuing to ask, like, what what meaning can I make out of this? Because we're always meaning making creatures Um, and that there are like I still have a really beautiful life that the loss of mercy, that the open heart surgeries for my youngest son, which is another really hard thing, like it's integrated within. And that sense again, like I said, oh, I wish it was an apex. And then you're on the other side. Right. You know, it's there. It's it's much more like a wave pattern, you know, and, and some I can't anticipate. Like um, typically, I don't know if it will be this way for the rest of my life. But uh, February and March are hard for me. Like, mm-hmm. I have an embodied memory of grief. Uh, Indiana has crappy weather. And oh, yeah. Like, it's to be endured. And I'm remembering burying my daughter. And, you know, I, I was at, I can remember a couple of years ago, it was that particular season. I was just feeling, like, deformed much more than mm-hmm. reformed. And I actually reached out to... Well, probably 10 to 12 people who knew me really well. And I said, I feel this year like mercy has only been lost to me. Like I have only been lessened as a result of this. I feel it really deeply. And I just want to invite you to speak into that. Um, And I got some really powerful, you know, things that people were able to speak into that I had asked for. Um, and one of the most powerful was, you know, my my mother, actually, because I, I had said specifically, like, I just feel hollowed out by this loss. Um, and she wrote to me and she said, you know, what I see, like the image I have for you is that hollowed out place has actually become more and more a place that is able to hold other people oh. and their loss. And that it's not actually just emptiness, like it has become a part of that carrying. Um, and that continues to be really meaningful to me. And that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows, like, you know, three months from now. I might be at, you know, in a wave where I'm feeling like less than, and I know my people and I know they show up and like, they can speak into that. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think, well, and I read that and I thought, 
we're all absolutely positively changed by pain and it, and it's different. Like it, we can't sit in a circle all the time and say, well, this is how I handled it. And here's what you should. I mean, that's not, yeah. that's not always helpful, but to be open and to talk about it and to have people that you can count on like that and reach out to like that. I think that's where the re- the reform comes mm. where you're like, I'm not defined by this. I'm not controlled by this, but I am better equipped, you know, I've, I've come out of this and those are, it's, it's not those cliches. It's not that pressure to, you know, say, okay, well now I can take the keynote stage. Cause I've had my <laughs> perfect amount of I've suffering. had enough people. To <laughs> I'm here to write my book. No, it's, it's just, I'm getting along the best that I can. I just, it, it resonated a lot with mm, me. All of you, I, this is why I want people to get in touch with whether it's your blog, which is phenomenal. I mean, I find something in there every time I visit it that I'm just like, oh, like I'm I'm a sticky note person. I got them everywhere. And I've got several with um, words of either yours or people that you've had mm-hmm. on. Um, but your blogs, your videos, you have a Handle With Care podcast um, that yep. I think is also phenomenal. And the Empathy at Work work that you do. There's a certificate and a course and there's coaching and all different types of things I think um, that people can take a look at for their organizations. Uh, what am I missing? What that sounded, that your, sounds your great. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a great uh, just housing place for all of that is my website, lieselmurdis.com. Yes. Um, open to company specific engagements. So if there's not something on there that meets your needs and I mean, um, we've woven it throughout, but I, I say it not just because I sell it, but because I really believe it. Like empathy is the leadership skill for mm. 2020 and beyond. And beyond. No. And it's I, not something to survive through. It's something to grow within. Yes. And I recently switched over to this communication information sciences graduate program. We're developing the tech leaders of tomorrow. And I cannot tell you the amount of empathy and just what we're going to need to deal with just even technology, creating technology for humans. And I watch social dilemma and I'm listening to those people thinking, Oh, if you just had a little empathy, when you started this journey, we wouldn't be having to make a documentary today. Just the like buttons. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He's like, we made the like button. So we thought it would spread positivity. And I was like, Oh, wow. How'd that work? (laughs) And then we gave you a heart. Come on. What more do you want? (laughs) Yeah. We've given you all the tools. I don't know why you're not using them. Um, I would also highly suggest people um, if they're in business and on LinkedIn that they follow you there as well, because sometimes you're scrolling through and it's a video. Other times it's just a post or you're showing support or dropping some um, really great information, but I cannot thank you enough. I feel so privileged and honored to have met you in person um, briefly in 2020. I mean, there's, that's a short list right there. I know of people that may, I've shared space with. Cross again I person. know. And I cannot thank you enough for um, putting those kids to bed and then jumping on this call with yes. me at the end of an, a long day. So from, from my closet. <laughs> 
I still have not changed over my summer clothes to winter clothes. I, and it what's is the, time. What's the point? I, I know. It's because I'm existing mostly in my sweatpants. I know. It's it's kind of, I'm I'm telling you, it's been a really good year for that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's been a little freedom of. The forgiving wastelands. I'm may telling they, yes. they endure. <laughs> it was really a pleasure to talk with you too, Anna. Oh, thank you so I, much. I, I legitimately uh, enjoyed it. So. Good. Well, Thank I'm you. glad because yes. I, um, like I said, you were on my goals list. So I feel like I got a, a check in 2020, which is. Well, kind of- if I, if I can help people achieve their goals in a year where goal achievement is elusive, that makes me feel good. Well, that was a great conversation. I hope you feel the same way. Lisa has so many amazing perspectives on just how to approach life and how to engage your tribe, yourself, be more empathetic, build those muscles. I love her avatars. I hope you'll check the show notes and pay special attention to her content, whether it's her website, Instagram, LinkedIn, she's on Twitter, she's everywhere. So I hope you will connect with her and continue this perspective of empathy and constant awareness, because I think that is how we recognize and change if we need to. So thank you for joining this conversation. And I'm really hopeful you got as much out of it as I did. And have a great week.